Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. If you will ask the right questions, answer them honestly, and then act on them appropriately or accordingly, you will make better decisions and have fewer regrets. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good idea to me. So, of course, the obvious question then becomes, well, what questions are we supposed to be asking, right? What are the the best questions or the right questions to ask when you're making a significant life decision? And that's what the series has been all about. And up until now, we've covered four of them. Today, we're going to have a look at our fifth and final question. But before we do that, we're going to do a quick rapid fire review and recall of the questions we've covered so far. So let's see if you can remember them. All right, question number one, the integrity question says, am I being honest with myself? Really? Like, am I being truthful with myself concerning the motivations and aspirations and intentions behind this particular decision that I'm making? Why am I choosing this option over that option? At the end of the day, the easiest person in the world to deceive is yourself. So you have to be honest with yourself about why you are making the choice you are making. And the more honest you can be, the better your decisions are going to be. All right, question number two, the legacy question. And the legacy question asks, what story do I want to tell? When this decision is part of my history, when these circumstances are part of my life story, what do I want to be able to say about this decision? What story do I want to tell? Will it be a story about courage or a story about fear? Will it be a story about selfishness or a story about selflessness? Will it be a story about integrity or a story about compromise? Right? Because we write the stories of our lives one decision at a time. And the stories we tell are a big part of the legacy we leave. And that legacy is going to have multi-generational impact. So ask yourself the question, how do I want to be remembered at the end of my life when everything is said and done and I'm not here anymore? What do I want people to be able to say about me? And what story do I want to have told about my life? All right, question number three, the conscience question. And the conscience question asks, is there a tension that deserves my attention? It may be that you're standing at like a critical intersection in your journey of life and you're about to make a choice in a particular direction or you're about to exercise um, a decision for something and everything looks good on paper. Like you're getting green lights at every turn. People are affirming and encouraging and saying, go for it. But somewhere deep inside, you know something's not right. You're unsettled. There's a sense of disease. You just don't know why. You can't put your finger on it, but you know something's not quite right. When you get to that point, you have got to stop, right? Pull up the handbrake and ask yourself the question, why do I feel so unsettled? Because more often than not, your intuition is spot on. So when you feel that tension, pay attention to that tension because it's trying to tell you something really important. Question number four was the maturity question. And the maturity question is this. What is the wise thing to do? Not just what's the possible thing or the acceptable thing or the permissible thing or the legal thing or the moral thing. What is the wise thing to do? Given my personal history, my current circumstance, my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations, what is the wise thing for me to do right now? Because a decision could be 
not immoral or not illegal, but still be not wise. And I reckon if you look back over the history of your life, you'll recognize that most of the things that you regret were really the consequence of a series of unwise decisions. They may not necessarily have been illegal or immoral, but they were just unwise. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, not just can I do this? Is it possible and permissible? But should I do this? Is it a wise thing to do? Now, I don't know about you, but I find that framework incredibly helpful. I really do believe it represents the wisdom of God. And honestly, I wish I had it 25 years ago when I was a young man. It would have saved me a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And I reckon if you're honest with yourself, you would say, yeah, me too, right? It's absolutely brilliant. A wonderful matrix through which to push your decisions. And that brings us to our fifth and final question. But before I tell you what it is, I need to just point out that this fifth and final question comes with a disclaimer. Kind of like a little warning label, if you like. And the disclaimer is this, that this fifth and final question does not come with a guaranteed immediate return on investment. By that I mean, if you ask any one of those four preceding questions, you are going to be instantly and immediately benefited. Ask any one of those four questions we have just gone through together and you will gain a valuable insight that will serve you well in the process of your decision making, but not so with question number five. And that is simply because question number five is not about making your life better, it's about making other people's lives better. Now that may, in the long run, ultimately make your life better too, but it doesn't always. And so even though question number five has an ultimate payoff, it doesn't always have an immediate payoff. And you need to know that. All right, so with that said, let's dive in. When we turn to the Gospels in the New Testament and the life and ministry of Jesus, we discover that from the moment Jesus began his public ministry, he was hinting at the fact that something new was coming. God was about to do something new that was going to be disruptive and upset the apple cart and change the status quo. Everything from healing a blind man on the Sabbath to turning over tables in the temple, all his parables, all his miracles, all those dinners with tax collectors and sinners were indicating to people something new was about to happen, something disruptive, something that would turn the whole Jewish system of religion on its head. Now, of course, many people, including Jesus' own followers, thought at first that Jesus had just come to be a political revolutionary, that all he had come to do was to liberate Israel from the oppression of the occupying Romans. But of course, we know with the advantage of hindsight, that is not at all what Jesus came to do, right? Jesus did not come to be a political liberator. Jesus came to be a spiritual liberator, not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, and in fact, for the whole world. Jesus came not only to set people free from oppression and affliction, but to set them free from sin and selfishness and evil. And so Jesus, one night, was sitting with his disciples they were around a dinner table and they were sharing a meal together. And this was a very significant night because it was the night of the Jewish Passover. And this was the annual festival on which Jewish people celebrated the day that God delivered Israel from Egypt many thousands of years prior. And so as Jesus sat around the table eating and drinking with his disciples, marking this very sacred holy moment, 
at some point during the dinner, he turned to them and he said something that was so unexpected and so profound, it has fundamentally and forever changed our understanding of who God is and more importantly, what God requires of us. And John, who was Jesus' youngest disciple and one of his closest friends and one of his first followers was there on the night and he records what Jesus said for us in John 13, 34. So let's read it together. This is Jesus speaking. He says, a new command I give you. Whoa, hold on a second. What do you mean a new command? Why do we need a new command? I mean, not long prior to this, Jesus had summed up the entirety of the Old Testament command in two. He said, the greatest commands of all are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Jesus said the entirety of the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament mandate can be summed up in these two commands. Love God with all that you have and all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. So Jesus, why do we need a new command? But here's the thing. Jesus was not giving his disciples an additional command to be tacked on to the end of the existing commands. Jesus, he was doing something far more radical. He was replacing the existing commands with the new command. All of them. This new command was not an addendum or an appendix or a, or a postscript that got tacked on to the end of all the existing commands. Right? This command was not number three to be added to the new, simplified, summarized, two greatest commands. It certainly was not command number 11 to be added to the Big Ten. It wasn't command number 614 to be added to the existing 613 Old Testament commands. This command was not like a, a bonus song on the end of side B of the album, right? This was a brand new release. This was a new command to replace all the commands. And Jesus goes on to elaborate on what this command is. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. Now, that part wasn't entirely new because Jesus had already established the priority of love. Love for God and love for others. But Jesus didn't end there. He went on and what he said was so unexpected and so surprising and so unthinkable, it has literally redefined our understanding of God and what it is God requires of us. He goes on to say, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. In other words, Jesus is saying, not only am I giving you a new command to replace all the commands, but I am establishing myself as the new measure of that love. I am the personification of the love of God. I am the embodiment of the love of God. I am the new benchmark by which you should evaluate and measure and define and understand love. And friends, the reason why this is so important is because how you define love is ultimately going to determine how you express love. And as far as Jesus is concerned, the most important thing to the heart of God is how we express love. 
In fact, the same John who's writing the words of Jesus here for us in John 13, later on in the New Testament, would write a little letter to a group of people that he was pastoring. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, John the disciple says, God is love. Now, please notice that John does not say love is God, right? Because the order of that wording is so important. And it's important because John is trying to tell us that it is who God is that shapes our understanding of what love is. It's the character of God, the nature of God, the personhood of God, the essence of God that defines love, not the other way around. Because if you flip that on its head and you reverse it, and you allow your personalized, individualized definition of love to shape your understanding of God, you're going to end up with some pretty weird ideas about who God is. Right? Take tolerance, for example. So many people in our world today say, well, love is tolerance. The loving thing to do is to be tolerant of other people. But friends, tolerance is more correlated to indifference than it is to biblical love. You know why? Because tolerance says, you do you and I'll do me. You stay over there and I'll stay over here. If you put up with me, I'll be willing to put up with you. That's tolerance, right? Tolerance doesn't care about the other. Tolerance isn't interested or curious or involved, but not so with love. Love cares deeply about the other. Love is willing to get involved. Love is willing to intervene. Love is willing to confront and to challenge. Listen, if I genuinely love you, I am not going to just tell you what I think you want to hear. I'm going to have the courage to tell you what you need to hear. That's true love. So how you define love is so important because it's ultimately going to shape how you express love. And so what the Bible is telling us here is that God, the nature of God, the essence of God, the character of God is the working definition of love. And where is the character of God most clearly and profoundly revealed? In Jesus. It is who God is revealed in Jesus that defines what love is. And so Jesus here sets himself up as the new benchmark, the new measure, the new standard of love. And essentially what he is saying to his disciples is this. Listen, boys, I know up until now you have understood that you need to love others the way you yourself would want to be loved. But I'm raising the bar. From this moment onwards, I want you to love others the way I have loved you. I want you to treat others the way I have treated you. Not just the way you want to be treated, but the way I have treated you. I want you to show mercy the way I have shown mercy. I want you to serve people the way I have served people. I want you to love people the way I'm about to love you by laying down my life in selfless, sacrificial service to meet your needs above my own. I want you to love people the way I have loved you. And just as the disciples are kind of getting their heads around this new command and all its implication, Jesus goes on to say something equally profound and equally challenging in verse 35 of John 13. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, not only am I giving you a new command that is going to replace all the commands, and not only am I establishing myself as the measure and the benchmark of true Love, but I am giving you a new priority in discipleship. And that is to live out this love in my name. Because what will authenticate and validate your discipleship is the nature of the love that you show. 
to one another and to this world. And do you notice that Jesus here, using a demonstrative pronoun, in fact, a singular demonstrative pronoun, is pointing to one specific thing. One specific thing that would be the identifying characteristic of true faith and true devotion to Him. And it's this Jesus-shaped, Christ-like love for others. Did you notice that Jesus did not say, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, by the passion and conviction with which you defend your doctrine. <laughs> right? Now listen, I love doctrine. Doctrine's important. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I love dogma. I love theology. I've spent the last 25 years of my life formally studying the Bible, studying theology, studying doctrine, studying dogma. But friends, listen, I came to the realization pretty early on in my faith journey that what validates and authenticates my devotion to Jesus is not much... Not, not how much theology I know or how much doctrine I acquire. It's how well I love people. Spiritual maturity is not evidenced by how much you know, but by how well you love. And so if you are more preoccupied with and concerned with defending your doctrine than you are with loving people, I think you've misunderstood Jesus. And you've misunderstood the heart of God. God is all about the priority of loving him and loving others. And Jesus says, this will be the thing that defines you and marks you and validates you as a follower of mine, the love that you have for others. And so that brings us, friends, to this fifth and final question in our series. And it's what we call the relationship question. And the relationship question is this, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? In the context of this decision that I'm about to make, in light of the choices that I have in front of me and the consequences that they will have on everyone around me, what is the loving thing to do? What does Jesus-shaped, Christ-like love look like in the context of my decision? In a sense, you're asking the question, what would Jesus do? I know it's sometimes hard to answer that question, right? Because we don't have a working like example of everything Jesus did and could have potentially done. But based on what you know of him, based on what has been revealed to us of his heart, his character, his priorities, his values, what do you think Jesus would want you to do in that decision? What do you think he himself would do? What is a Jesus-shaped, Christ-like, selfless, others-centered kind of love require of you. Now, I know that you are smart enough, you are like astute enough, you've been around long enough to be able to answer that question. What does love require of me? But you know what, just on the off chance that you maybe aren't sure, the New Testament is jam-packed full of practical, everyday, real-world examples of what this Jesus-shaped love looks like in action. The New Testament authors elaborate on this in all sorts of helpful and wonderful ways. Paul, for example, in Galatians 5 says, you know what, in the context of your shared life together in the community of the faith, the Holy Spirit is always going to nudge you and move you and mold you towards peace and joy and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. You know why? Because that's what Jesus-shaped love looks like. That's what love requires of us. That same Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 gives us perhaps one of the most articulate definitions of this Christ-like love, perhaps in all the New Testament scripture. He says in verse 4 to 7 of 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. 
Love is not jealous. It's not boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. In other words, Paul's saying this Christ-like, Jesus-shaped love is not self-seeking. It doesn't get angered easily. It doesn't keep a score sheet of rights and wrongs. It chooses to forgive. It extends mercy. It puts others first. This kind of Jesus-shaped, Christ-like love doesn't bring harmful things into relationship. In fact, it works hard to protect relationships from harmful things. This Jesus-shaped love doesn't disrespect. It doesn't neglect. It doesn't abuse. This Jesus-shaped love is kind and gentle and patient. And the question that you and I need to ask ourselves if we're going to make better decisions and have fewer regrets what does love require of me? And friends, ultimately in the long run, there is a payoff for answering that question honestly and acting on it courageously. But in the immediate term, in the short term, it may require more of you than it gives to you. It may be more demanding than rewarding, but it is the Jesus way. And I love this quote from Andy Stanley. We'll finish with this thought because he articulates it so well. Yeah, he says, I don't always know what to believe, but I do always know what love requires of me. And I think that's so true. This journey of faith, you and I are on together. Sometimes it's hard to know what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's not, what's true, what's false. Sometimes it's hard to discern what's good theology, what's bad theology, what's sound doctrine, what's unsound doctrine. But I'll tell you what's, what's not hard is knowing what love requires of me, knowing what the Jesus-shaped loving thing to do is. So ask the question. Answer it honestly and have the courage to act on it accordingly will make better decisions and you will have fewer regrets in Jesus name thank you for listening to this podcast for more great resources and to keep yourself up to date head to our website visit therocks.church